Did you know that plants and ecosystems have memory? Not the same memory as you or I, but a type of memory, nonetheless. Join me today as we chat to a researcher who uses observations to explore the carbon, water and energy cycles of terrestrial ecosystems, and importantly, the memory of these systems. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. On the show today, it's me, your host Hannah. Today I'm chatting with John Page, who's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of New South Wales here in Sydney. Welcome to the show, John. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, before we begin, I know you've recently submitted your PhD. Congratulations. How does it feel to be finished and newly employed? Yes, it's good, although I am a little sad that I won't ever be a student again. There's something quite nice about being dedicated to learning as opposed to being a productive Learning's member Learning is a society. lifelong pursuit, though. <laughs> you can still learn and oh, be paid much better for it. It's one of the joys of research, I guess, <laughs> is that, you know, every day is a school day. So. That's right. Well, congratulations. I know it can be a long road. So before we begin our episode today, could you just tell us a little bit about what kind of science you did for your PhD? Ooh, yes. <laughs> I have to cast my mind back to August so 9th when ago. I submitted. <laughs> so I was in the land department of the Climate Change Research Centre at UNSW. Mm-hmm. So we basically look at how the terrestrial land surface, all the all the planet that's not covered in water or ocean, mm-hmm. um, how that responds to, you know, climate, weather, how, what the vegetation affects it, how different aspects of the land, how we can understand it, basically. And I looked at observations from the land surface. So, you know, what actual measurements do we have? And how can we use these to help improve our computer models we use to model the Earth system. Amazing. Doing the good work for all of us. Could you tell us a bit more about these observations? Like, how how are they taken? So, at the moment, the cutting edge of uh, yeah <laughs> observations to look at, you know, the exchange of matter and energy between the land surface and the atmosphere uh, from something called eddy covariance towers. Fancy. Yeah. So, but basically what they are is on a tower, which you place over the land you want to measure, be mm-hmm. that, you know, it could be a farmer's field, it could be the Daintree rainforest up north, for instance. Um, but on any of those, you basically put an instrument and all it does is it measures whether the air is flowing upwards or downwards. And it measures the concentration of water vapor and carbon dioxide in that air. Mm-hmm. And then basically by doing some fancy equations, mass balance and stuff, you can then work out whether, you know, the water vapor is there's more water traveling downwards or upwards. The same for carbon mm-hmm. dioxide. And these towers are heavily instrumented. So you also get um, a lot of meteorology variables measured. Um, yeah radiation, temperature, temperature, pressure deficits, so the humidity. And using all of that, you can just get a real picture of, you know, what's travelling up, what's travelling down. So That's so cool. Over what kind of area do these towers measure? So so it's one of the good questions. (laughs) So it's called a tower footprint. um, And it's highly reliant on the wind direction. So it's quite interesting because at different times you can get 
different measurements from different areas as the wind changes direction. Ah. But yeah, it's on the order of sort of a kilometer squared up to about a hundred kilometers squared, oh, depending wow. on the landscape. Yeah. I thought I'd seen one of these towers out in Western Sydney somewhere, but maybe I you haven't. You would have done, yes. So, so, so it's measuring over potentially like metropolitan Sydney as well? or uh, just... So you, that's a very good question. In general, you need very flat landscapes for the sort of assumptions on okay. the equations yeah. to work. So urban towers are a bit interesting because obviously buildings don't tend yes. to be flat. We're not all <laughs> hobbits living underground. But... You, you know, you can put them there. You just have to be more aware. I don't know if Sydney has an urban one, but there's yeah. definitely some ones in forests around Sydney. Okay, cool. And so to recap, these towers can measure the flux of carbon dioxide and water vapour that's either moving up from the vegetation or down, as well as a bunch of other parameters like temperature, rainfall. Yeah, so for instance, for the water cycle, which is probably the easiest to sort of understand, obviously the water in is rainfall or snow. Mm-hmm. And you measure that at the site. And then you measure the water vapour that's going out, which obviously comes from, you know, the sun evaporating puddles and the moisture in the soil, but also from plants transpiring and photosynthesising. And then by, you know, taking the balance of those, you can work out whether the ecosystem's releasing water to the atmosphere or whether it's taking it and using it. Very cool. How many of these towers are there around the world? Do you know? So, yeah, there's, there's quite a few. I think in total there's over 900. Whoa, okay. Um, yeah, so, you know, they don't measure large areas on their own, but there are quite a lot of them. Yeah. And are they spread across different kinds of land surfaces? Or? Yeah, so in general, people try and measure interesting sites, yeah. which is nice because it means you get quite a broad range of places. Yeah. But it's also a bit annoying because, you know, not everything on the planet is interesting per se. <laughs> Um, Matter of opinion, I think. <laughs> precisely, but you know, different researchers who run these towers like to look at different yeah, things. Yeah. And how many people like to look at, you know, sort of a plain grass field. Yeah. Somewhere is, you know, probably less than people who like to look at rainforests. Rainforests, <laughs> or you know, their favourite wood they grew up in, or something. <laughs> They're lot. really expensive to run, which mm-hmm. means uh, a lot of them, they only have data for sort of you know, two, three years. Okay. But there's a few in Australia that are actually world-leading, world-class in terms of length of data set. So there's one up in Howard Springs in the Northern Territory. Um, That one's been running for nearly 20 plus years. Wow, okay. Um, And obviously that's really useful. When you're looking at climate change, it's great to have a long data set so that you capture all sort of climate extremes. You can see how things are changing over time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then I think there's uh, there's some others in Australia, like Tumbarumba. Where's that? Where is that? That's a very good question. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's not too far away, actually. Oh, okay. um, New South Wales. Yeah. So, you know, again, that's got quite a long data series. And so in general, what do people use this data for? Really, they're some of the only observations and like literal observations we have of the land surface and these exchanges of carbon, water and energy. Yeah. Um, So there's a lot of focus now on putting satellites into space. Like I said, these towers, they only measure what's really quite a small area of the land. Obviously, if you've got satellite orbiting, you can get a much bigger picture, but you can't actually measure gas exchange from a satellite satellite. so you need proxies and Mm -hmm. so what you do is you put up your satellite you measure irradiance or Mm -hmm. how green something is and then you can 
compare that to these ground-based observations, uh, the sort of ground truth, if you will, and make sure that the satellites are telling you what you, th- what you think they are. And so then you can use the satellite data to get these observations over a broader area. Yeah, absolutely. So So you can use, you know, you can then use satellites to tell you about things that are happening where we don't have any any covariance towers. I mean, the towers as well are often used to uh, sort of benchmark or evaluate other globe climate models to make sure that what they're doing over land is correct, which again plays into this whole sort of using them as the observations to make sure that where we're having to use computers and models and such, we're, we're getting it right. Yeah, cool. And what do you specifically use this data for in your research? Or what did you use it for in your PhD research? <laughs> so, yeah, I was mostly looking at the overarching theme was how predictable these sites should be. And what, what we mean by predictable is given you know all the climate and weather that's going into a site, as well as maybe what plants are growing there, what the soil is like, how well should we be able to tell whether it's sequestering carbon from Mm -hmm. the atmosphere or whether it's releasing it, whether it's evaporating a lot or a little? So just to give you an example, one sort of idea might be if you've got a tower that's over, say, a pine plantation that is irrigated. I don't think anyone irrigates pine plantations but you know something that's very very homogeneous <laughs> yeah. you know a lot of trees all the same species all the same height that's constantly got water going mm-hmm. in then you'd expect to be pretty predictable basically it's going to grow when the sun is shining because yeah. it's got it's water it's got all the nutrients the plants need yeah and then when the sun's not shining it's not going to and mm-hmm. so that should be very predictable that, that should be very easy for us to say what's going to happen with just a little bit of data whereas if you're looking at you know, sort of monsoonal system. Some of these Australian uh, sites, for instance, where it's heavily dependent on whether it's rained, mm-hmm. but also you have multiple different types of species that behave differently. So, for instance, out near Alice Springs there's a site and it has this very double-storey structure where you've got your trees, mm-hmm. your mulga trees, as well as your grasses. Yeah. Um, and so understanding how those behave differently to different weather conditions means that you might expect it to be harder to predict what those sites are doing. Yeah. And so when you're using eddy covariance data, flux data, to benchmark your satellite or your computer model, you might not be so worried if it's not doing quite as well at, say, Alice Springs as if it was doing poorly at a German pine plantation. Yeah, okay. I see. I see what you're saying. And so you're trying to work out which of these, like how well you can predict how the ecosystem might behave based on all this data. Yeah, basically. So, you know, for instance, at one site, you might just need to know whether it's sunny or not or whether it rained in the last five days. Another one, you might need to know how humid is it because of these plant species particularly depend on it or, you know, has it rained within the last six months? Yeah. And you also need to know about, you know, the complete breakdown of the species and access Mm -hmm. to groundwater or that there's a river nearby that provides water to the system, for instance. And so is this where the concept of memory comes in? It is. Yeah, it's kind of cool to think of, like, you know, a tree sat on its decking in its rocking chair, smoking its pipe, (laughs) like, back in my day. Um, But, yeah, it doesn't, isn't quite like that. Uh Um, But it's this idea that when you want to know what, a tree is doing today whether a tree is growing or not 
there's this been this sort of assumption, especially in some older generations of computer models, that you only really need to know about the weather today. Okay. So, you know, <laughs> is it raining? Is it sunny? Uh, it's sunny and it's, you know, the plant's growing. But actually, you know, it's pretty obvious, right? When you've got a plant on your windowsill, if you forget to water it for a few days and then you go and water it, it's probably still oh, going to be a bit so unhappy. Guilty. <laughs> so guilty over here. I might, I might have targeted that to you in specific, <laughs> but I am also picturing my own peace lily sat on Neglected and starving. That, yeah. Yeah, and when you water it, it doesn't necessarily perk up immediately. Exactly. Yeah. So it's this idea of trying to look into how far back do ecosystems remember the conditions they were under Mm -hmm. and what's the impact on that today yeah Um, so there's a lot of really cool work around it but a lot of it's been experimental yeah so people will you know grow plants and purposefully not water them so you could just claim that's what you're doing (laughs) um and then you know it's quite interesting if you don't water a plant it's you know a lot of them they sort of acclimate to having less water okay and so they'll grow more conservatively because they'll sort of worry that may well <laughs> I, I like to personify my plant but you know they'll be like oh actually yeah there's a lot of drought in the past yeah and so they'll grow in a way which means that they use water more more efficiently yeah oh, this is fascinating and so what did you actually find like did you find that in certain areas the rainfall is really important for these plants or that the i don't know soil conditions or something were what what have you been able to so disentangle from your research <laughs> we we mostly looked into the memory to rainfall and you know you had some sites especially around australian things where rainfall for a year or more in the past could be really important um, so how much it rained a year ago is really important for how the plants are growing is whether today. it's growing today or not yeah wow. which is is pretty cool i mean it's yeah this idea that whether it had access to water in the past i mean obviously as well whether you know if it hasn't rained for a whole year clearly that's going to affect what's yeah. happening today um but you also have this, you know, when it rains, it sort of refills soil moisture, mm-hmm. can replenish groundwater. And so, you know, that can be one of these sources of memory coming through. And so it's quite, you know, it's very interesting to just look at these sites and try and work out why one might have this longer term memory where others might Don't. not. Yeah, so know. it varies across sites. Not all sites Absolutely. care about the rain a year ago, but some do. Yeah, totally. So, John, how, how does this kind of research help all of us? Like, I know you're talking about the climate models before. Does this? I think that's the key. Feedback into that somehow. You know, it's it's all about making sure that these models we use to say how you know the planet's going to change in the mm-hmm. future, making sure that they're accurate, mm-hmm. reducing the uncertainty in those. Really. Yeah. Yeah. It's the idea is just to make sure that. We understand what the planet is telling us through these observations and yeah. then can incorporate it into into our computer models to make sure, you know, that we're on track to not... To improve them so we can have, you know... Yeah, so um, that we know Confidence in the predictions. Absolutely. Great. Are there any other ways or, like, observations in this research can be used? A lot of these models are used to test different scenarios or mitigation policies so like climate mitigation policy yeah exactly you know what we can do to try and prevent this headlong rush into climate disaster Mm -hmm. and 
you know, so for instance, one of the ones that's still really controversial and nobody really knows the answer to, it seems, is whether planting trees, you know, is a is a worthwhile pursuit from the aspect of mitigating anthropogenic really? so from fossil the, emissions. So from the carbon sequestration perspective? Or? Yeah. So, really? Yeah, so planting trees, you know, obviously it's great. I'm all for it. Forests are amazing for biodiversity and such like that. Yeah. But whether it is an actual long-term solution to all our fossil fuel emissions is an interesting question that people still don't necessarily... And and why is that? Is that because the scale at which it would be required or is that because changes to like so land surfaces? What's the... There's a few different aspects to it as far as I understand it. So one of them, first of all, is that, I mean, trees will only grow where trees naturally grow and so you know when we cut down all these trees in the past we released a lot of the carbon stored in them when we cut down the trees and burn them for firewood or Mm -hmm. you know just to clear the space and so where we can reforest is basically where we've already chopped them down yeah and so that does that will take away from the emissions from deforestation in the first place yeah but then that won't actually you know, we'll still have all the emissions from burning coal and oil and stuff. Yeah. So there's not there's not really the capacity to take up more than we've already emitted. Yeah. Okay. I see where you're coming from now. Um, and um, then, so it's not a it's not a one stop solution. No, exactly. But... And then the other aspect of it is how long do trees actually? How long do they? How much carbon do they hold on to? Mm-hmm. And then how long do they hold on to it for? Yeah. You know, if you grow trees where they don't don't survive yeah they'll hold some carbon in their trunks and leaves for 20 years and then when they die they'll just release it all again mm-hmm. so it's about that sort of turnover so the idea would be you know reforest where we can but mm-hmm. it's definitely not the silver bullet but still to, need to be drawing down the emissions emissions exactly <laughs> yeah we should still be aiming for you know net zero from other other angles as well yeah absolutely there's this really cool project called the Global Carbon Budget. It's really cool, basically, what this Global Carbon Project attempts to do is just quantify where all the carbon humans have admitted almost ever has gone yeah, and where it's come from as well. And so that's where this plant and tree stuff's quite interesting, actually, because all the carbon that humans have admitted have basically come from one of two sources. And that's either burning our fossil fuels, mm-hmm. oil, coal, gas, or it's from land use change, which effectively is either cutting down trees or ploughing up grasslands. And, yeah. you know, this project, which includes some really great scientists, has basically, they reckon about, I think it's just under half has come from this land use change. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, when we hear about deforestation, it's a lot of focused on the Amazon and Indonesia and places. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of the land use change is very historical. You know, mm-hmm. um, Europe used to be covered in forests, North America are places. And so, you know, when we cut down those and made the landscapes what they are today, that released a lot of carbon. So, yeah, wow. you know, replanting trees is obviously great. I mean, one of the issues is that obviously you can't replant trees in London, for yes. instance. Um, so there's a limit. There's a limit there. But yeah, you know, a lot more of the land used to be 
forests and natural areas. So. so replanting trees, particularly replanting, you know, native vegetation where it was cut down is still great. It's just Absolutely. not going to get us to our you know, this, emissions goals. That's basically. the other key thing which, you know, you, you said it so well. It's about native species and things as yeah. well, you know. That's that's what to do. If, if, if you go and plant pine trees in places and stuff, you know, they, yeah, they grow super quick, but what benefit does that actually provide? Whereas mm-hmm. this sort of rewilding, approach is ah oh man it fills me with such joy what's a rewilding approach ah so it's just where you you know you let the landscape almost almost naturally but often with a Assisted? big helping hand <laughs> um you know return to what it what it should be historically okay. yeah um so i'm from the the uk originally little backwater called norfolk but it's it's really cool like recently um they reintroduced some some beavers in the area which yeah. haven't been there for ages right which but beavers build dams and it's actually been really great for like local hydrology oh, um slowing wow. down water and yeah. things preventing some flooding and stuff and also you know creating these sort of wetlands which bring back biodiversity and help yeah you know sequester carbon in the in the wetlands and stuff stop the soils from drying out so yeah i mean sounds amazing great yeah definitely plant trees love the planet (laughs) great advice i think i remember reading a paper about how sorry i I, let me clarify (laughs) re-clarify I think I remember reading the headline of a paper. <laughs> I was saying something about carbon emissions from the Amazon rainforest and whether because of the rate of deforestation that's occurring there, whether it might change from a you know, net carbon sink to a carbon source. Do you know anything about that? And can you get information about that from these flux towers? So, yeah, kind of, I guess. It's sort of in my space. Um, so, Adjacent? <laughs> yeah, yeah adjacent field um so there's this idea that you know plants use carbon dioxide as food yeah and we're putting a lot more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere Mm -hmm. and so ah you know surely plants are hungry most people will happily eat a big cake if you put it in front of them plants (laughs) aren't greening greening kind of and so you get this greening aspect where you know because plants have more food available they'll grow more they'll grow bigger they'll take in more carbon Mm mm-hmm and that was sort of the prevailing thoughts for a long time. It's called the um, carbon fertilization effect. Okay. And flux towers have helped to address this in a way. Okay. So what they, a lot of the experiments that sort of backed up this carbon fertilization were taken by taking little plants, putting them in a chamber at high carbon dioxide, the sort of levels we'd see into the future, which... Okay. You know, back when some of these experiments were done, were all 400 parts per million. Oh, we've just crossed over that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, current, current, current levels. levels. But, you know, yeah, they'd grow a lot quicker, which is great. But, you know, the vast majority of forests on the planet aren't young shoots yeah. growing up. They're, yeah. they're mature forests, you know. Mm-hmm. They've, they're already big. They've already kind of grown, potentially, you know. They've reached towards their limit of size. Yeah. And so there's some um, really cool experiments out there where what they do is they've taken a flux tower yeah, and then they have surrounded the landscape that this flux tower measures with um, big pylons and they effectively pump out carbon dioxide. Into this area? Into yeah. the area to raise it within the area to future levels. Okay. Um, so, you know, that could be, say, 650 parts per million yeah. or something. 
and then and what do they find so that's a good question um again very expensive to run so not a lot of them have been running for for very long yeah but it seems to be that plants immediately react they do start growing a bit more okay um you know but then like us at a buffet it seems they get a bit full and sort of slow down you know there's a there's an initial reaction but then it kind of seems like they then revert back to how they currently are so by having this these flux towers and seeing something like that we can then make sure that uh climate models aren't just blindly assuming that the amazon will all of a sudden become twice as hungry for carbon and yeah. save us just because that carbon's available yeah and you know there's still still a lot of research needed in this space but at least now we can put the two competing theories into these models yeah and you can sort of you could see what the difference is between you know uh, what happens if that amazon does respond in this carbon fertilization way and what happens if it doesn't yeah Um, but of course i guess that doesn't account for the the loss of a lot of that forest area yeah exactly you know this is this is talking about just sort of individual trees or at the tree stand sort of level not the how it responds you know at the end of the day if you cut down the amazon for (laughs) more beef patties then uh yeah it's still going to be a carbon source yeah yeah well it's really interesting work i'm glad Uh, you think so (laughs) i was just going to ask what you're doing in your postdoc now are you working on similar research so at the moment what i'm working on it's not it's not particularly research necessarily okay um but you know it's in the same field in terms of trying to improve these global climate models um so i'm working with my supervisor gab abramovitz who's an absolute dude um <laughs> and we're uh he was made A professor very, very lovely yesterday um, oh congratulations so gab um but basically his whole passion in in work, maybe not in his life, is to help people understand how well their models are doing yeah, um, through, through benchmarking them is the term he uses, which is basically, we want to say, you know, how well should a model of the land surface, how well do we expect it to do? What makes it a good model versus a bad model? Which ones should we trust over others? Which ones should we put more weight in? So I'm helping him develop his, he's got a really cool website that is being developed so that anybody making a model of the land surface can stick their model in and see how well it does against other models, against observations. Ah, that'd be so useful. So the idea is that hopefully it gives people a really easy way to evaluate and improve their models. Yeah, awesome. Um, so that that's the end goal. Uh, and that's what you're working on. Yeah, I'm still Great. settling in. Yeah, but. yeah. Very recent, I know. <laughs> okay, well, thanks so much for coming on the show, John. To round it out, and given that you've just recently submitted your PhD and started a new job, do you have any advice that you would give to young, aspiring, or freshly minted PhD students? Yes, I do have some advice for them. <laughs> and what is it? <laughs> no, I think I think my advice for PhD students is to remember that you're still a student. You know, it's in the title. You're there to learn. You're there to, you're training to become a scientist at the end of the day, you know. I mean, PhD students are in a unenviable position of doing the vast majority of, you know, the cutting edge research. For the least reward. For the least reward. <laughs> and say, so, you know, don't you beat yourself up though if things aren't going well for you. It's very easy to, you know, compare yourself to other people who are 
rolling in job offers and smashing out paper after paper that gets called out in the news and things. But, you know, they're they're the exception. They're not the rule. Um, Yeah, I like that. I really like that advice of remember you're still learning. I think like as a current PhD student, I'm probably guilty of forgetting that sometimes and thinking that I should know more than I do or, you know. Yeah. You know, you're in reality, yeah. You're still there with a supervisor who should be teaching you what you're doing. And I mean, it's unfortunate a lot of supervisors out there. I mean, you know, I think universities let them down. There's not often a lot of training in being a good supervisor. Mm -hmm. And they've got huge demands on their time now. Academics are expected to do everything by universities as part of cost cutting measures. And it means they often don't have time to sit with their PhD students, which then puts a lot of pressure on PhD students to be self sufficient. But at the end of the day, you know, like, yeah, you're still finding out and exploring this scientific world and the right way to do things within it and mm-hmm. how to navigate it. And so I think, you know, just keeping that in mind and sort of leaning into it as well, you know, it's a really good chance of and time to be wrong, to ask a lot of questions, to get ideas from other people and just really try and develop yourself in a in a broad sense yeah i love that well thank you for being our guest on the show john no thanks so much for having me um i hope everybody's enjoyed the episode you can hit me up if you want you can find me on the internet john page unsw send me an email (laughs) happy to chat more great this was boiling point the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 fm we'll be back next week with a new science story bye for now